So we are approaching the very end of the book, um, but actually in a lot of ways, Judges has already ended. Uh, because these last, this last section, uh, chapters 17 all the way to the end, uh, chapter 21, isn't really like Judges that we've uh, been reading and going through uh, up until this point. Uh, let's describe this a little bit more as an appendix to the entire book, okay? It, it's different. In chapter 17 and 18 specifically that we're going to be in today, there are no judges. There are no judges in this story at all, okay? That's why it, it's a little different, Right Up until this point, we have had similar literary themes, okay? The idea that they have forgotten God, right? We have said that how many times now, right? We understand that the people of Israel in Judges forgot God, right? What's the other phrase that we've been really hitting home through this entire time? They have done what is right in their own eyes, yes, okay? So we're still going to see similarities like that even in this last section, okay? Um, we ended the book of Judges with who? Samson, probably the most popular judge of the entire, of the entire Bible, right? Or Christian history, whatever. Like, everyone knows Samson. Everyone knows the story of Samson, okay? And in, it started with chapter 13, just as a quick recap. And what happened in chapter 13, that was the birth of Samson, right? And people usually use that to kind of skip over and talk about the story of Samson as a whole. But we, we camped there for a second because we wanted to make sure that we realized Samson was not the point of the story. The point of the story was God redeeming his people through his people, in spite of his people, for his own glory, right? That was the main point of chapter 13. Then next, we had David come up, right? And he talked about actually the life of Samson and his story and how it all ended with him trying to take revenge because they took his eyes, right? And he broke down the temple and everyone died and everything, right? But it had nothing to do with the glory of God. It was for his own glory. He was mad because he lost his eyes, right? And we talked about, you know, the symbolism of that quite a bit. Okay, so now we are here on chapter 17. And like I said, for all intents and purposes, the book of Judges is over. All right? I, I want us to understand that because we're, we're going to see different ideas coming up. All right? In fact, this next section kind of takes the mirror, if you will, and turns it around. Okay? I had to kind of ask myself, like, why is this section even in the book? <laughs> it's the book of Judges. And now this last section has nothing to do with the Judges. <laughs> but what this is going to tell us is how deep the moral decay is of God's people. Okay? Let's keep that in mind as we're kind of unpacking this section a little bit more. All right? Um, <clears throat> so we get in here, we're going to be talking about this guy called Micah and how he is connected with the Danites, and how this leads to a really, really bad event where the Danites go and take over the city, okay? That's kind of the roadmap of where we're headed, all right? Uh, but before we get there, I, I want to just kind of call out a couple of phrases and see if you guys can complete them, all right? Let's see if you uh, remember these. If you wish upon a star. star, all right, okay. Remember always, let your conscience, yeah. where's that from? <laughs> True. Pinocchio. Everyone knows the story of Pinocchio, right? 
the, the, the wooden puppet that, right, you know, comes to life. It's this really creepy thing where this wooden puppet's walking around, and, you know, it's supposed to be this cute little children's movie, but it's actually, like, basically a dumbed-down water version of Chucky, okay? Um, watch it again. Watch it again, okay? I, I mean, so, all right, so it's, it's this, basically this uh, wooden puppet, right? He comes to life, right, by the blue fairy. And what does the blue fairy tell him, right? Remember, Pinocchio, always be a good boy and let your conscience be your guide, right? And then provides a conscience by a bug, okay, which there is some symbolism that the moral direction and the moral compass and the, all, all of this, the thing that's supposed to be the good thing in the entire story is also the smallest thing in the entire thing. Has everyone ever, everyone ever made that connection of the Disney symbolism there? The good thing is actually the smallest thing. Uh, anyways, we don't have to get into that. Okay, so anyways, so he gets this conscience, right? And, but what we learn through this entire thing is Pinocchio rarely listens to him, right? He sits there and tries to sit him down and tell him everything. like, and tr- tell him all the good things to do. And Pinocchio just goes and does his own thing anyways. Eventually ends up on this pleasure island where he turns into a donkey and, turn, and gets sold into slavery working into a salt mine. Great Disney movie. What we learn from this is there's a big difference, right, between having a conscience and actually listening to your conscience. And that's what we see in Micah and in the story here in chapter 17. We know that they know the Lord exists. We know that they understand that there is a Yahweh, that there is God. We know that, but they choose not to listen. And because of that, because they choose not to follow those commands, we get anarchy. <laughs> we get just this crazy, crazy story. Just like in the story of Pinoc- Pinocchio, right? He chooses not to follow his conscience, not to listen to those commands, and you get just absolute anarchy. And that's, that's the symbolism that we see here in this story. Not saying that it's some hyperbole or not true or anything like that, but that's what we're trying to learn from this, that there's a difference between knowing God and actually following what he tells us. Okay, and that's what we see here in chapters 17 and 18. So what we're going to do is go ahead and dive in because there's one big literary theme that we're going to see again. And uh, I think it's in verse six, but we're going to read it and find out. But that's everyone that was right in their own eyes. So we see this again. All right. So let's read, uh, ver- uh, sorry, chapter 17, verses one through six. And boom, got it. All right, here we go. <clears throat> there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And this is not the prophet Micah. Okay, so two different people. All right. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I, re- I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image, a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What? (laughs) 
This is the kind of crazy story that we get in chapter 17. So we get how this moral corruption is just, this is how deep it is. Okay, this is how deep it is. So it's also often understood, okay, that this appendix to the book of Judges, okay, actually takes place shortly after the death of Joshua. Okay, so if that is true, that means now that we have reached the end, we're actually all the way back at the beginning. So we're talking about things getting worse when actually this is how it started. (laughs) Right, that's how bad things actually are. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit, okay? So what we see is this guy, right? His name is Micah, and he has stolen money from his mother. And not just like walked into her bedroom, took 20 bucks out of the wallet, and, you know, went to the arcade. You know, or kids still do that, right? Um, they, anyway, so he went to the arcade, right? No, we're talking about 1,100 pieces of silver. That's a fortune. That is a lot of money. In fact, later on, we find out with the, the Levite, and like I said, we'll get there, Mike ends up paying him like 10 pieces of silver a year, and that's considered a good wage. Like, just so we have some perspective there, okay? 1,100 pieces of silver, in which case he returns it to his mother. Did everyone catch why he returns it? Is it because he felt bad? He's repentive. I should have never have done this. No, it is out of fear. He's afraid of the curse that his mother put on the money. So he's afraid of being cursed, and that's the only reason he returns this money, out of fear. Not because he feels bad, because he did it, okay? So he returns the money to his mother to return this major fortune that, by the way, more than likely he would have got when she died anyways. So, you know, we never really know why he decides to get it now, but who knows, right? But anyway, he's going to get this money anyways, decides to steal it, gives it back to her, okay? And let's, let's think about this. What kind of society are we in that this is considered best case scenario? This is the best case scenario because mom is not even mad. (laughs) She doesn't say, how dare you? None of those kind of, that's not what we get. We actually get, thank goodness, I will consecrate you. I will praise you, right? Let me take 200 pieces of the silver and give it to the Lord because you are such a good boy. That's the story we get. This is best case scenario, not that he's repentive. Like, that's not even it. When someone steals, that they just give it back because they're afraid. That's the society that we are currently in at this point in time. So, this is a little bit of like a chicken and egg concept, right? If this is how bad society is, like no wonder we start getting bad judges, <laughs> you know? It's like, so which came first, okay? So anyway, he, he takes this, he takes this money, and then they end up making a carved image, a metal image, and we'll, we'll get to that here in a second. But he steals the 1,100 pieces of silver to begin with. So obviously we have, Theft, we have greed. We, we already have a bunch of stuff wrong. A bunch of stuff going wrong here. This kind of reminds me of another story. Uh, remember, like, as a church, whenever we went through the book of Acts, and we came to Acts 5, and it was a story of Ananias. And it was that really uncomfortable uh, story where he sells a bunch of land, but then keeps money back. Does everyone remember that? Okay, so he keeps money back from the sale of this property. And Peter calls him out right? Uh, We don't have to turn there or anything, but I do want to read what Peter said. 
Um, it's in uh, chapter 5, verse 3, if you want to look it up. Like I said, we don't need to turn there or anything. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So Peter calls him out, right? Calls out his greed, calls out the evil in his heart, all of that, right? But we don't get that in this story. We don't get that voice of reason. We don't get that uh, pull or tug of the spirit to lead us in the right way, right? We don't get that conscience be your guide type of scenario back in Judges 17. We don't get that person that is willing to step up and say something, right? And we see a very similar scenario um, further on in Mark 8, whenever Jesus does it to Peter, the very famous scene, get behind me, Satan, right? Jesus calls out to Peter. Because Jesus saw that Peter's heart wasn't in the right place. He wasn't looking from a kingdom mindset, right? And Jesus steps up and calls him out on it. And again, we don't get that in this story. No one stops this. No one stops the theft. Like even though, like we're talking about within a family here. And no one stops the theft. No one stops the curse. No one stops the, you know, taking this to the silversmith to build images. No one stops this. The next big thing that I want us to see from here, the mom takes over to the silversmith, right? He says, I dedicate the silver to the Lord for my hand, for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I restore it to you. Okay, first, why are we talking about two different images? Let's, let, let's, let's break this down so we can kind of see what we're talking about. So a carved image in this particular case could have literally been like a piece of wood that they would you know, whittle down to whatever image they wanted, right? And then they take that piece of wood and they dip it in silver and therefore you have a carved image, whether it be you know, horse, pig, you know, whatever you want it to be, right? That's a carved image, okay? A metal image in some other translations would have been called a forged right, or a molded image, okay, which is a little different, which literally, you would start with an actual mold, right, and you pour the silver or precious metal into it, pop it out, and then now you have a hunk of metal that is shaped to whatever your mold was. Why is that important? Um, it's important only because in order to make both of these, you have to be dedicated to the lie. <laughs> because then he goes on not only to make it carved, but to also make a molded image, which means the mold had to be made. Okay, he is dedicated to this. He then goes on and makes future gods, or uh, household gods, sorry, right? He then goes on and makes an ephod for his priestly son, right? So why this is important is how dedicated he is to create this ideological religion. That's how deep he is in on this. But the most, like the scariest part of all of this is what the mom does to begin with, with the silver, when she says, I dedicate this to the Lord. Now we're back to this idea, I know God, right? I know he exists, but I choose to do my own thing. Now I've heard this taught, one other way that this was done out of ignorance. They had no idea how to actually praise God. 
they were surrounded by other gods and everything. It's like, well, if my God is anything like the rest of these gods, then he would enjoy this. But to me, you can't have one without the other because the same guy was also saying that this in the timeline was right after Joshua, which would mean that there, there wasn't necessarily an ignorance there. It was all still freshly taught. This is blatant. I'm going to do my own thing. I want my own religion. I want my own character of God. They choose to worship God literally the opposite way he wants them to. Exodus 20. We don't have to turn there real quick. I just want to read it. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything, it, excuse me, of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That should cover it, right? <laughs> How God wants to be worshiped they're doing the exact opposite. Why do you think God does not want us to make images? Here's what that does. This is, this is the sin in it, okay? When we create for ourselves an image, even if it's to worship God, we have now owned that image. We are now creating a character of God, focusing on some aspect of God that we choose to focus on. We are now choosing to worship an incomplete picture of God. In fact, God has already made an image of himself. Look around, right? But we choose to put ourselves in the driver's seat to make this image and focus on, well, my God is love. Completely ignoring that he is also just. Right? My God would never save a bunch of animals on a boat and let people drown. So now we are starting to worship this incomplete version of God because we have created for ourselves our own picture and our own image that we choose to worship that fits within our little hole, right? Those little holes that the kids play with, put in the square peg in the circle. Like everyone's heard that analogy before, right? And that's what we're doing. We're forcing God into something that he is not. And that is containable because he's not containable. And that's what we get when we make these, these idols. And then this also becomes just a generational sin, right? So it first starts as just a family sin, right? A mother and a son, right? So there's a little bit of generational but within the family, right? But now it's even multi-generational because now Micah is bringing in his own son to dedicate him to this, um, as a priest, to this fake religion that he's creating to perform priestly duties, whatever that would be in this context, <laughs> In essence, Micah is taking this idea, this idol of God and creating a cult around it. Quick little sidestep, modern sidestep actually. So I think it's really easy for us to create these separations and these barriers when we read stories like this in the Old Testament. And it's kind of like, well, we have the perspective of 21st century America. We have the perspective of the entire Bible. We would never do stuff like that. That's idiotic. Who would think that that's a real thing? Um, I want us to realize that cults are in existence today. Okay? Cults are in existence in today in the United States. But even more specifically, they are in existence in Jefferson City. 
They are here in this town. Okay? I know this. I have been approached by one. <laughs> pumping gas. Yeah, I've told a couple people the story. I was pumping gas at the uh, Main Street break time when someone came up to me and offered me to join a Bible study so he, I could learn more about Father God and Mother God and how they came together in unity to produce Son Jesus. Main Street, break time. And this guy knew scripture. Like he was able to, let me rephrase that. He has memorized scripture. Let me rephrase that, right? And was able to just spout off. And that, that's, that's what they're taught to do, okay? So this is not some distant problem. This is not some moral corruption that happened thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago. No, this happens right now, okay? This is moral corruption that we are capable of now. Okay, there is not some, you know, historical separation. The entire point of this, and that's why I want to bring this up, this is supposed to be uncomfortable. This is supposed for us to, to sit back here and listen to this story about how this guy creates this cult in order to praise and worship this God that we just got done doing, right? It's supposed to be uncomfortable. We're supposed to see ourselves in this because that's the entire point of this section, right? The mirror has been turned. It's no longer focusing on judges, but us as the everyday people. Now we see how we are also moral corrupt, how we support this problem, the moral decay of all of this, right? And because of this, we have a tendency to not only worship an incomplete God because we make idols, right? Maybe uh, they're not necessarily, you know, hanging on your windowsill at your house or anything like that. Maybe you haven't, you know, stolen, you know, 1,100 pieces of silver to create something like this. But we all have certain characteristics of God that we like to focus on in our own heart, in our own mind, right? Which then leads to this incomplete picture of maybe the gospel in general. Because you like to focus on this idea that, yeah, Jesus died to forgive me of my sins. Because I'm forgiven of my sins, I can do whatever I want. It's an incomplete picture of the gospel, completely forgetting that moral decay and moral corruptness that we see in Judges 17 is perfectly capable of happening right now. And that is moral corruption. That is a simple heart that we can all take part in. We have to first recognize that that brokenness is there, right? Genesis 3, we broke it. And without recognizing that and coming to God in repentance and faithfully believing that Jesus can save and can forgive and can make us clean from our moral corruptness, something we cannot do in ourselves. We have faith that Jesus is the one that can make things right. He's the one that can make things new. It's only when we put him at the center. Actually, let's go ahead and bring those up. So um, everyone remember these very beautiful graphics that David made for us? Let's first start with the uh, self. Bingo. Okay, everyone remember these? It's been a few weeks since we've seen them, right? This is what we see, right? You start making yourself the center of everything. All of a sudden, Judges 17 gets really easy, Right? I'm going to make this idol, this character of who I want God to be. Worship an incomplete God, an incomplete gospel, because I want to focus on this because it's about me. When instead, this is what we should be focusing on. With Christ at the center. 
Guys, at the end of the day, you're going to influence someone. You're going to influence someone. So decide how you want to influence. Because as the story keeps going, we come upon the one person that should have been an influence like this in this situation. And that is Jonathan the Levite. We find out later in the story that his name is Jonathan. Everyone remember what Levites are? The priests, <laughs> right? They were set apart by God for temple worship activities. If anyone should have known how to properly worship God and correct this behavior, it should have been him. But instead, he walks into the situation, and instead of being this, do it. All right, awesome. He's this. Because he is tempted, he starts thinking about himself. He's offered silver, he's offered clothes, he's offered food, and he's offered a place to live to become a priest for this fake religion that Micah has come up with. So instead of being this light in, this, in the darkness, instead of being this voice of reason, instead of being the conscience, right? Instead, he becomes part of the problem. So now we have the sin of Micah going from generational and uh, family. So now we're coming out and now it's starting to corrupt the actual church. Okay? Our graphic that we saw earlier, right? It's going to just keep growing. We'll come back to it here in a little bit. All right? But the one person that should have been the light in this situation takes on darkness. He failed in every aspect that he should have been involved in, right? So let, let us never forget, church, that whenever we worship an incomplete God, worship an incomplete gospel, right? Not only does that hurt us, but it hurts everyone around us because you are not saved for you. You are saved for everybody else, for a reason, for a purpose, and for a mission, okay? Acts 13.47 says, may we, may, may we bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Yeah. You're going to influence someone. Start with Christ at the center, not that. Jesus even reminds us of this, that that light that we are meant to be is him at the center, not us. It does not come out of us, but yet comes out of us through him. That's why he has to be at the center. That's why we have to understand the complete gospel that we are saved because we cannot save ourselves, right? John 8, 12 says, again, Jesus spoke to him saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So instead of walking in the world, we are sent into it to be that light. Like I said, the story just keeps getting worse and keeps expanding out to where eventually the tribe of the Danites, which is the tribe of Samson, we all remember, he was a Danite, which means judge, right? They find their way to the house of Micah. Now they are on a mission that they don't need to be on. They are on a mission 
basically to find a new home because they were unable to take over the one they have. God gave them a portion and they were unable to take it. So instead of taking it, they decided to go and take someone else's. There was no king in Israel to tell them that this was not the thing to do. So they chose of themselves to go and do this. Now there's one last opportunity for maybe them to turn around and go home. And that's with our good friend, Jonathan. The Danites come to him, noticing he's a Levite, noticing that he's a priest and saying, again, right? They know of God. They're not necessarily obeying God in this situation, right? So they go up to him and be like, can, can you speak to God for us? Can you speak to God for us? We're on this mission. Speak to God for us. And then and we find out in Judges 18.6, Jonathan tells them, and the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Go in peace. Our bubble just got bigger. So now, not only are we multi-generational, now not only are we corrupting the church, now we are corrupting an actual, a full tribe. Now we are corrupting culture. Go ahead and bring that image back up of our target. Because we want to see how this grows. Right? We start with his idolatry. We grow out. So now we're talking multi-generational sin. Keep going out. Now we're talking about corrupting the church. Keep going out. Now we're talking about corrupting culture around us. And the next thing, what the Danites do is they go to this other culture. They go to this other city, the city of Lash, right? And they go up there in order to take over this peaceful people. Bible even calls them a peaceful people. And the Danites come and just completely obliterate them to take over their town and rename it Dan. They rename it after themselves. So now not only are we corrupting culture, but now we're multicultural corruption because of one sin that wasn't stopped at the beginning. We will always influence. And we don't know how much weight our influence is going to have. When Micah created this cult. In his mind, he probably did not know that because of this, because I stole 1,100 pieces of silver and created a carved image, an entire city burns. He probably didn't see that coming. But that's what we get. That's what we see. That's the story of, the, of Judges 17 and 18. So don't ever think that, well, this is just my, this is my thing, right? This is just how I view. This is just how I want to view God. This is like, I'm not hurting anybody by viewing this, right? But th this is the danger of like relativism, right? And existentialism. This is, this is the danger of that. When we don't base what we do and what we uh, perform, and everything like that, if we don't base it in what God actually commands us, this is the danger, this is, this is the danger, okay? Um, I want to go ahead and start the closing here with uh, just three main points on what we need to do. And this, th this is kind of like what, how I want you guys to just think about it practically, okay? Because when we talk about we're, we're going to influence others, no matter what, we're going to influence others. Like, okay, well, but so well, how do I do that, right? How, how do I do that well, okay? Well, luckily for us, here recently, Pastor David went through the entire Sermon on the Mount. 
He went through the entire sermon on the mount, right? Preached through it. And there is a lot of meat there that helps you to live well, we'll call it. I would encourage you to go ahead and read through the Sermon on the Mount as often as you can. Because there's a lot of, lot of meat there, a lot of good information that will help steer away from this. And I want us to think through three things. And this is more kind of a missional outlook, if you think about it. So we must realize the church affects the world, okay? And we should ask ourselves, how are we going to do that? So number one, do we want to be a church against culture? Is that the kind of church we want to be? Are we the kind of church that wants to basically hole up in a bomb shelter and shout back at the culture on how they're getting everything wrong, but yet we're good and protected in here where no one can get to us? A church against culture. Are we a church of the culture where we capitalize on the good deeds of people? Um, I mean, there's a lot of good things that happen with human rights and, and all this, and we want to be able to support those things and everything. But yet, sometimes they don't necessarily line up with what the Bible actually says, right? Or are we a church sent into culture? Being ambassadors for Christ and the word. We're going to have the worship team come back up. Go ahead and leave that up if you would. But just, just think through. And this doesn't necessarily have to be a memorial-specific question, but just in general, how, how do you feel the church should be? How, how do you feel like you need to influence others around you? You know, Maybe reading through that Sermon on the Mount can help keep your, uh, your heart and your mind everything right, right, in the right place. Right? But do you feel like the church needs a church against culture, with culture, or sent into culture? Because you can't deny the fact that there's influence. So as the band plays, it just asks you to respond and just kind of think about it. Maybe just look upon that. Just look upon how one one man's sin can grow into that. Uh, maybe this is an extreme view. You know, maybe this is an extreme view. This doesn't always happen, right? Just because you do something sinful tomorrow doesn't mean Jeff City's going to burn, okay? So don't, don't have that anxiety <laughs> or anything. But if there's one thing these two chapters show us is that it's possible. Everything's connected that way. So choose to influence with Christ 